Chapter 14, Part 2 of The Faith of Our Fathers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenever. The Faith of Our Fathers by James Cardinal Gibbons. Chapter 14, Part 2. Is it lawful to invoke her? The Church exhorts her children not only to honor the Blessed Virgin, but also to invoke her intercession. It is evident from Scripture that the angels and saints in heaven can hear our prayers, and that they have the power and the will to help us. Now if the angels are conversant with what happens on earth, if the prophets, even while clothed in the flesh, had a clear vision of things which were transpiring at a great distance from them, if they could penetrate into the future and foretell events which were then hidden in the womb of time, shall we believe that God withholds a knowledge of our prayers from Mary, who is justly styled the Queen of Angels and Saints? For, as Mary's sanctity surpasses that of all other mortals, her knowledge must be proportionately greater than theirs, since knowledge constitutes one of the sources of celestial bliss. If Stephen, while his soul was still in the prison of the body, quote, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, close quote, if Paul, quote, heard secret words, close quote, spoken in paradise, is it surprising that Mary hears and sees us now that she is elevated to heaven and stands, quote, face to face, close quote, before God, the perfect mirror of all knowledge? It is as easy for God to enable His saints to see things terrestrial from heaven as things celestial from earth. The influence of Mary's intercession exceeds that of the angels, patriarchs, and prophets in the same degree that her sanctity surpasses theirs. If our Heavenly Father listens so propitiously to the voice of His servants, what will He refuse to her who is His chosen daughter of predilection? chosen among thousands to be the mother of his beloved son if we ourselves though sinners can help one another by our prayers how irresistible must be the intercession of mary who never grieved almighty god by sin who never tarnished her white robe of innocence by the least defilement from the first moment of her existence till she was received by triumphant angels into heaven in speaking of the patronage of the Blessed Virgin, we must never lose sight of her title of Mother of our Redeemer, nor of the great privileges which that prerogative implies. Mary was the mother of Jesus. She exercised toward him all the influence that a prudent mother has over an affectionate child. Quote, Jesus, says the Gospel, was subject to them, close quote, that is, to Mary and Joseph. We find this obedience of our Lord toward his mother forcibly exemplified at the marriage feast of Cana. Her wishes are delicately expressed in these words, quote, They have no wine. Close quote. He instantly obeys her by changing wine into water, though the time of exercising his public ministry and for working wonders had not yet arrived. Now Mary has never forfeited in heaven the title of Mother of Jesus. She is still his mother, and while adoring him as her God, she still retains her maternal relations, and he exercises toward her that loving willingness to grant her request which the best of sons entertains for the best of mothers. Never does Jesus appear to us so amiable and endearing 
as when we see him nestled in the arms of his mother. We love to contemplate him, and artists love to represent him, in that situation. It appears to me that, had we lived in Jerusalem in his day, and recognized, like Simeon, the Lord of Majesty in the form of an infant, and had we a favor to ask him, we would present it through Mary's hands, while the divine eyes of the babe were gazing on her sweet countenance. And even so now, never will our prayers find a readier acceptance than when offered through her. In invoking Our Lady's patronage, we are actuated by a triple sense of the majesty of God, our own unworthiness, and of Mary's incomparable influence with her Heavenly Father. Conscious of our natural lowliness and sins, we have frequent recourse to her intercession in the assured hope of being more favorably heard. Quote, and even as children who have much offended a too indulgent father, in great shame, penitent, and yet not daring unattended to go into his presence, at the gate speak to their sister and confiding wait till she goes in before and intercedes. So men, repenting of their evil deeds, and yet not venturing rashly to draw near with their requests an angry father's ear, offer to her their prayers and their confession, and she in heaven for them makes intercession. Do you ask me, is Mary willing to assist you? Does she really take an interest in your welfare? Or is she so much absorbed in the fruition of God as to be indifferent to our miseries? Quote, Can a woman forget her infant so as not to have pity on the fruit of her womb? Close quote. Even so, Mary will not forget us. The love she bears us, her children by adoption, can be estimated only by her love for her son by nature. It was Mary that nursed the infant Savior. It was her hands that clothed him. It was her breast that sheltered him from the rude storm and from the persecution of Herod. She it was that wiped the stains from his brow when taken down from the cross. Now we are the brothers of Jesus. He is not ashamed, says the gospel, to call us his brethren. Neither is Mary ashamed to call us her children by adoption. At the foot of the cross she adopted us in the person of St. John. She is anxious to minister to our souls as she ministered to the corporal wants of her son. She would be the instrument of God in feeding us with divine grace, in clothing us with the garments of innocence, in sheltering us from the storms of temptations, in wiping away the stains of sin from our soul. If the angels, though of a different nature from ours, have so much sympathy for us as to rejoice in our conversion, how great must be the interest manifested toward us by Mary, who is of a common nature with us, descended from the same primitive parents, being bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, and who once trod the thorny path of life that we now tread. Though not of the household of the faith, Edgar A. Poe did not disdain to invoke Our Lady's intercession and to acknowledge the influence of her patronage in heaven. Quote, at morn, at noon, at twilight dim, Maria, thou hast heard my hymn. In joy and woe, in good and ill, Mother of God, be with me still. When the hours flew brightly by, and not a cloud obscured the sky, my soul, lest it should truant be, thy grace did guide to thine in thee. Now, when storms of fate o'ercast, darkly my present and my past, 
let my future radiant shine with sweet hopes of thee and thine. Close quote. Some persons not only object to the invocation of Mary as being unprofitable, but they even affect to be scandalized at the confidence we repose in her intercession, on the groundless assumption that by praying to her we ignore and dishonor God, and that we put the creature on a level with the Creator. Every Catholic child knows from the Catechism that to give to any creature the supreme honor due to God alone is idolatry. How can we be said to dishonor God or bring him down to a level with his creature by invoking Mary, since we acknowledge her to be a pure creature, indebted like ourselves to him for every gift and influence that she possesses? This is implied in the very form of our petitions. When we address our prayers to her, we say, Pray for us sinners implying by these words that she herself is a petitioner at the throne of divine mercy. To God we say, Give us our daily bread, thereby acknowledging him to be the source of all bounty. This principle being kept in view, how can we be justly accused of slighting God's majesty by invoking the intercession of his handmaid? If a beggar asks and receives alms from me through my servant, should I be offended at the blessings which he invokes upon her? Far from it. I accept them as intended for myself, because she bestowed what was mine, and with my consent. Our Lord says to his apostles, I depose to you a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and may sit upon thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And St. Paul says, quote, Know you not that we shall judge angels? How much more things of this world! If the apostles may sit at the table of the Lord in heaven without prejudice to his majesty, surely Our Lady can stand as an advocate before him without infringing on his rights. If they can exercise the dread prerogative of judges of angels and of men without trespassing on the divine judgeship of Jesus, surely Mary can fulfill the more modest function of intercessor with her son without intruding on his supreme mediatorship for higher is the office of judge than that of advocate. And yet, while no one is ever startled at the power given to the apostles, many are impatient of the lesser privilege claimed for Mary. Is it lawful to imitate her as a model? But while the exalted privileges of Mary render her worthy of our veneration, while her saintly influence renders her worthy of our invocation, her personal life is constantly held up to us as a pattern worthy of our imitation. If she occupies so prominent a place in our pulpits, this prominence is less due to her prerogatives as a mother or to her intercession as a patroness than to her example as a saint. After our Lord Jesus Christ, no one has ever exercised so salutary and so dominant an influence as the Blessed Virgin on society, on the family, and on the individual. The mother of Jesus exercises throughout the Christian commonwealth that hallowing influence which a good mother wields over the Christian family. What temple or chapel, how rude soever it may be, is not adorned with a painting or a statue of the Madonna? What house is not embellished with an image of Mary? What Catholic child is a stranger to her familiar face? The priest and the layman, the scholar and the illiterate, the prince and the peasant, the mother and the maid, acknowledge her benign sway. And if Christianity is so fruitful in comparison with paganism, in conjugal fidelity, in female purity, 
and in the respect paid to womanhood, these blessings are in no small measure due to the force of Mary's all-pervading influence and example. Ever since the Son of God chose a woman to be his mother, man looks up to woman with a homage akin to veneration. The poet Longfellow pays the following tribute to Mary's sanctifying influence, quote, This is indeed the blessed Mary's land, virgin and mother of our dear Redeemer. All hearts are touched and softened at her name. Alike the bandit with the bloody hand, the priest, the prince, the scholar, and the peasant, the man of deeds, the visionary dreamer, pay homage to her as one ever-present. And if our faith has given us nothing more than this example of all womanhood, so mild, so merciful, so strong, so good, so patient, peaceful, loyal, loving, pure, this were enough to prove it higher and truer than all the creeds the world had known before. St. Ambrose gives us the following beautiful picture of Mary's life before her espousals. Quote, Let the life, he says, of the Blessed Virgin be ever present to you in which, as in a mirror, the beauty of chastity and the form of virtue shine forth. She was a virgin not only in body, but in mind who never sullied the pure affection of her heart by unworthy feelings. She was humble of heart, serious in her conversation, fonder of reading than of speaking. She placed her confidence rather in the prayer of the poor than in the uncertain riches of this world. She was ever intent on her occupation, and accustomed to make God rather than man the witness of her thoughts. She injured no one, wished well to all, reverenced age, yielding not to envy, avoided all boasting, followed the dictates of reason and loved virtue. When did she sadden her parents even by a look? There was nothing forward in her looks, bold in her words or unbecoming in her actions. Her carriage was not abrupt, her gait not indolent, her voice not petulant, so that her very appearance was the picture of her mind and the figure of piety." Her life as a spouse and as a mother was a counterpart of her earlier years. The Gospel relates one little circumstance which amply suffices to demonstrate Mary's supereminent holiness of life, and to exhibit her as a beautiful pattern to those who are called to rule a household. The Evangelist tells us that Jesus, quote, was subject to them, close quote, that is, to Mary and Joseph. He obeyed all her commands, fulfilled her behests, complied with her smallest injunctions, in a word, he discharged toward her all the filial observances which a dutiful son exercises toward a prudent mother. These relations continued from his childhood to his public life, nor did they cease even then. Now Jesus, being the Son of God, quote, the brightness of his glory and the figure of his substance, close quote, could not sin. He was incapable of fulfilling an unrighteous precept. The obvious conclusion to be drawn from these facts is that Mary never sinned by commanding, as Jesus could not sin by obeying, that all her precepts and counsels were stamped with the seal of divine approbation, and that the Son never fulfilled any injunction of his earthly mother which was not ratified by his eternal Father in heaven. Such is the beautiful portrait which the Church holds up to the contemplation of her children that, studying it, they may admire the original, admiring they may love, loving they may imitate, 
and thus become more dear to God by being made, quote, conformable to the image of his Son, close quote, of whom Mary is the most perfect mirror. End of chapter 14